Amen. Thanks, Blake. Yes, I will. Thank you. So, uh, who has a who has a smartwatch? Anybody have a smartwatch that they wear? Sort of. Not many, sort of. Kind of. It's a it's it's a reasonably a reasonably intelligent watch, but not a not a smartwatch. I was so excited when I got my smartwatch because you know it's got like you know all these different. I can put so many apps on it. I, I was like, I'm going to be so productive now. I got I can. You know, I can get my messages, I can talk, I can almost everything that's on my phone, I can get on my watch right now. I have found, though, there's one thing that is invaluable for, and that is that I can look at it and tell what time it is uh, at any given time of the day. My wife, Robbie, has a smart watch that uh, she just got a new home screen for. Uh, she's actually back with the Kidsgate thing, so uh, she's not going to hear me talking about this. <laughs> but it's good. No, it's not, it's not bad. I just was suddenly realizing she's not here. But she's got a home screen for it, and it, it, it not only tells her the time, but it actually estimates how many days she has left to live given a normal person's lifespan. Now, your reaction, it was the same as mine at first. I was like, oh, no, that's just... <laughs> So remorse, I mean, morose. Uh, so, I mean, but it does. It says in big letters, like it's 1045, but in smaller numbers, it reminds her she's got 8,100 days left or whatever it is. Now, it's jarring. Yeah, that's a jarring concept. It's uncomfortable, but the more I think about it, it's not a bad thing to keep in mind, really. In fact, it's biblical. Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses said, wrote, uh, teach us to number our days so that we may live wisely. So in, in reality, Robbie's smarter than any of us at this point because <laughs> she knows how many days she's got now. But either way, the reality of it is, all of this, all of this, everything we see, everything we know, everyone we know, including ourselves, has a limited shelf life. That's a reality. Life is terminal. Uh, and, 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 and that's true of, of all things. Based on what we believe the Bible reveals, that's true for this whole world. This all is leading towards somewhere, towards a, an end. There's a finish line out in front of us. Either the world's time you know, runs its course and Jesus returns, or our lives come to their conclusion, but either way, We all have limited days. We know Robbie's got 8,000 something right now, but, 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 you know, what do we do with those days? Each one of us has a limited number of days. What are we doing with those days? What do we do with this gift that's been given to us? How should we live when the finish line is out there? That's what we're going to be considering today in our study of Luke. Everybody's like, oh, I'm so glad I came. You'll like it. I think you will. If you've got a Bible uh, or a Bible app and you want to follow along, if you'll go to Luke chapter 21, please. We're continuing through our study of the gospel of Luke. We're on the, we're close to the finish line in this study. Uh, last week we read three little vignettes where Jesus, um, was revealing some hidden things. He rebuked the religious leaders of the temple uh, for the selfish pride that was hidden behind all of their outward piety. He praised that poor widow who was sacrificially living and giving when nobody even knew about it. And today he's going to talk to his disciples about the end of the world as they've known it. And there are lessons for us in that as well, in his message about our priorities. In 
in life in view of the finish line. So if you're there in Luke chapter 21, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 5. So it says, some of his disciples began talking about the majestic... Remember, they're in Jerusalem. They're there to celebrate the Passover. Began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Teacher, they asked, when will all this happen? And what, what sign will show us that these things were about to take place? Okay, we'll stop there. Here we've got our header. This actually lays it out for us, what it is that we're going to be reading about here, this, this whole section. And so we have to unpack this just a little bit. Jesus and his followers are leaving the temple area. Remember, they're there to celebrate Passover. They're with a lot of prayer. They're probably doing all the tourist stuff. So they got to go to the temple and look at that, like a little brochure going over, you know, all the details of that. And they're in awe at what it is they're seeing, the amazing craftsmanship that went into that uh, in con- constructing Herod's temple. The construction was actually still going on in Jesus' day. It didn't finish up until uh, around 64 A.D. So there would have still been construction stuff uh, around. But Jesus responds to their marveling with this cryptic prediction of the temple's destruction. Now, for them, it was a prediction of the future. For us, it's talking about something that happened in the past, right? We're clear on that. The, the, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD to crush the Jewish uprising at that time. Uh, the Roman general Titus laid siege to Jerusalem and he sacked it and completely and utterly tore the temple down. He thought there was gold in there or something and so they completely uh, demolished it. So his disciples then asked this intriguing question. I'm sure they're startled by what he has to say. But then they ask, when is this going to happen? Probably referring to the forecast of this temple's destruction. And then a second question is, what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? So this, as I said, provides us our header for understanding. This whole section is dealing with the end of the temple age, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which Jesus already alluded to. Remember when he came into Jerusalem, he... uh, went to the temple and he, and he staged a protest. He interrupted the sacrificial system momentarily and it was symbolic you know, of, of things to come. He disrupted the whole operations of it. Now this section appears in all three synoptic gospels that Jesus says these things. Luke's is somewhat unique. In the other accounts, there are elements that could possibly be forecasting something else beyond the destruction of the temple, some future events even beyond that. Luke doesn't include those, perhaps because he's getting a message across to his Gentile audience. His focus may be more tightly zeroed in on the beginning of the church age and the end of the uh, dispensation for Israel. Uh, And so I know that there are people that will look at this section that we're about to read today and say that it's about future events as well. I don't know. Does it include things that may suggest a final end? Possibly. Um, But here's the thing. If Jesus's words here that we're about to read is only about the end of the temple age and the beginning of the new one, it's still applicable to all of us. You know, we, we don't want to look at this and say, well, that's a nice history lesson and, you know, move on with life. Uh, it still has application to us uh, in in this. Um, so, because as I said, you know, whether we're talking about the end of the world uh, or or the return of Christ or or the end of our own personal life's story, there's a finish line somewhere. We're all facing that, and what's important is to know how to live in light of 
that finish line. Live in view of that. So we'll keep reading here. Verse 8. Jesus replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah and saying, The time has come, but don't believe them. And, and when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. Then he added, nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes. There'll be famines and plagues in many lands, and there'll be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. Okay, we'll stop here for a minute. Jesus actually doesn't, in typical fashion, doesn't address the question of when these things are going to happen. Instead, he starts talking about the, the suffering that will characterize this broken world in anticipation of some of these things taking place. The disciples figured for them, when they're asking this, they figured by asking for signs that some cataclysmic event has to take place for the temple to be destroyed so thoroughly. I mean, something like this has got to be, in their thinking, the end of the world as we know it. So how are we going to know you know, when this end is coming. And Jesus warns them not to get caught up in sensational news reports about wars or natural disasters. And that warning is still applicable today to us. There's a tendency with modern teachings on prophecy to look at this list that Jesus gives and compare it to, you know, present day events. We'll go through, well, you know, Jesus mentions earthquakes. And, you know, there's been more earthquakes in the last hundred years than we've ever known in history. So that's got to mean something, right? And, well, except that we just started tracking earthquakes within the last hundred years and just developed technology to make it a little bit easier to detect them. So, you know, is it an increase or is it just that we're becoming more aware? Teachers will point to famines and wars and pandemics and hurricanes as evidence of the looming end. And that usually will stir a lot of fervor and get people kind of excited. But the thing that we really have to remember here is that Jesus clearly states that he is not describing signs of the end. He says these things are going to happen, but the end isn't going to happen immediately. In fact, you know, when you see them, realize there's still time to go. What Jesus is describing is the time that we live in, the time that we've been living in for 2000 years. Times of confusion and turmoil and war and disease and natural disasters. And his warning is not to get caught up and ultimately misled by all of these things going on. So to live wisely with the finish line in view, we're called to stay on task in the midst of a troubled world. Jesus points to false teachers and fake messiahs, people who would come after after Jesus and try to alter the course that Jesus had set for us. And he tells us, tune that noise out. Influencers, religious and non-religious, are going to come along claiming to be somebody special, announcing a new and better way. And Jesus says, just stay the course of the simple gospel. Stick with it. Stay with that, regardless of all the noise going on around you. He points out all the ways in which the world suffers. The world had been suffering in Jesus' day. It continues on to this day through wars and natural disasters. And those things are terrible and they're upsetting. But Jesus tells us not to be frightened by how bad the world looks. It's going to look bad is what he's telling us. It's going to look awful. And it's going to like, you know, cheer up. It's going to get worse uh, <laughs> as it goes along. But his warning to us is to be alert, but not alarmed. 
Be conscious of what you hear and see, but not cowering in a bunker somewhere, afraid to stick your head up somewhere. Where false teaching and false ideologies pose a danger of pushing us off course by inserting new values and priorities that are different from the gospel's. The other troubles that he describes pose the danger of getting us fearfully obsessed with trying to stay safe, which will also cause us to veer from the course that Jesus set us on by engendering fear in us. And God does not use fear as a motivator. Oh, but Rob, Proverbs, fear of the Lord is beginning of the wisdom. Different kind of fear, different kind of fear than what I'm talking about here. The fear of the Lord is the acknowledgement that, hey, there is a God and it's not me. And I will uh, submit to the God who created me. But the fear that I'm talking about is that fear that is a great motivator. It's a great motivator, but it is an ungodly motivator as well. It's a twisted one. Fear will prompt us to look for enemies and build walls between ourselves and others instead of extending and engendering the grace of God that he's given to us and commissioned us to share with the world around us. What Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples and to us is that we have to expect that there's going to be a lot of noise calling for our attention. There's going to be a lot of troubles in the world we live in trying to define us or trying to define our priorities. The world is always going stupid. You could actually put that as the header here. Convulsing and reeling, it is not a safe place. We certainly are learning that lesson over and over again as the events of this world unfold. But this is the place we're called to. This is where Jesus put us. This is where Jesus commissioned us. And this is where our mission will take place. And the hard reality is this broken world will not make a safe space for those who claim that God is king. It just, it just won't. Jesus expounds on that, continuing to verse 12. But before all this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You'll be dragged into synagogues and prisons. You'll stand trial before kings and governors because you're my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I'll give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Even those closest to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. They'll even kill some of you. And everyone will hate you because you're my followers. But not a hair of your head will perish. And he's speaking on an eternal level there because he just said some of them are going to lose their lives. So he's talking in that eternal scheme of things. This is not real harm. By standing firm, you'll win your souls. Now, the immediate context when Jesus spoke this, this this actually was fulfilled by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Jesus is talking about this intense persecution that the early church suffered uh, from the religious leaders in Israel, but we know it expanded out from there. We know that it included the ferocious ways in which the Roman Empire uh, persecuted Christians. And, uh, and we also know that that continues on out into our present world where there are societies where Christians suffer real uh, persecution. Here in the U.S., we don't certainly face the intensity of it, but obviously there has been for a while now, a growing hostility towards 
the Christian faith, we could say. I'm going to say some of that uh, is due to our own behavior. Uh, but, but still, honestly, there's a growing intolerance, if you pay attention to it, of people of any faith, uh, but especially Christianity, it seems. And Jesus is warning that the world's broken system is going to make it hard for those who call him king because that's at odds with how the world works. They're going to persecute and pressure and marginalize in an effort to, to give up this crazy notion of a king who loves us. Or they'll try to co-opt uh, this faith and turn it into something it was never intended to be, something that just facilitates a grasp for power. He says our own families won't even be safe havens for us, that Christians throughout history have faced that sort of thing. Maybe we've faced it in our own lives, in our own families uh, as well. Still, Jesus encouraged us, us to gain a, a different view of the situation. He doesn't tell us to arm ourselves or, you know, go uh, fight for our rights. No, he said to see this. I hope you noticed it there. See this as an opportunity I mean, you think about like when people are treating you badly or pressuring you or doing things like that. Do we ever use the word, oh, what a great opportunity this is. I, you know, that's a rarity for me anyway. I'll just be honest with you. I don't ever think in terms of that. Like, oh, this is awesome. These guys really hate me. Uh, you know, we, we don't want that. We never think like that. But this is what Jesus is trying to capture our attention with. This is an opportunity, you guys, a chance to be a witness about our faith in God's love for us. Jesus is warning us the world is full of pressures, pressures from society and religions and governments, even our own families at times, to give up this foolish business about a God who loves and a God who loves us. But if we're living with the finish line in view, then I would say we have to endure in our love for God and our fellow human being. Love, love, is the only real motivation for our witness. Love is the motive for true righteousness. The love for God and a love for people, as Jesus declared in Matthew 22, are the values on which the entire Old Testament hinged. Love is the premise for the gospel. We quoted it this morning. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only unique son. Love is the identifying characteristic of the kingdom of God. Love is how the world will recognize that we are followers of this Jesus, according to John thirteen thirty four. This is our witness to the world. How we love that I believe Jesus is encouraging us to maintain, to stick with. In the parallel passage in Matthew, that's what he even says. The love of many will grow cold. Don't let that happen to you. This is our witness to the world. Love for all people. And when the world puts pressure on God's people, the church, our response is to be love. Love for our enemies. Not name-calling, not vilifying, or worse. Anger and outrage, that is the diet of this broken world. We are followers of Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. So think, Jesus is warning us, think about what you're taking in. This is what Jesus is encouraging us to stand firm in. The simple gospel. 
God so loved this world. He goes on, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you'll know that the time of its destruction has arrived. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills, and those in Jerusalem must get out. And those out in the country should not return to the city. For those will be days of God's vengeance, and the prophetic words of scriptures will be fulfilled. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. For there will be disaster in the land and great anger against this people. And here in this context, he's talking, since it's Jerusalem, he's talking about the the Jewish people. They will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all nations of the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of Gentiles comes to an end. Talking about this day of, of what we call the church age. And there'll be strange signs in sun, moon, and stars. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides. People will be terrified by what they see coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, what do you do? When all these things begin to happen, cower in fear, run and hide, Find a bunker, buy a gun. No, he says, stand and look up for your salvation is near. Okay, so this section is filled with hyperlinks here. Imagery and phrases that point back to other parts of the Bible that help us to understand what's going on. You've heard me reference that before. Tim Mackey, Professor Tim Mackey from the Bible Project first used that terminology. Jesus begins by quoting a mashup of Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34. And in that, those sections, we won't read them right now. The prophet's forecasting the invading bar, army of Babylon, who is coming in to sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple. So it's important that he's quoting and pulling from those sections here. And Isaiah says that when that event happens, that, that the, there will be signs in the heavens, that the heavens will be black and the stars will give no light. And later he prophesies against the nations of the world and he forecasts the destruction of the ancient kingdom Edom and, and described its ruin by saying that the heavens would melt and roll away like a scroll and the stars would fall from the sky. Now here's the thing. Those two events did happen in that Jerusalem was destroyed, Edom was destroyed, but none of these other things that he's describing in this literally happened when those kingdoms fell. It was language used to describe the ferocious ways in which these things would take place and how ferocious it would feel in those moments. So this hyperlink is telling us that Jesus is talking about the same stuff, the same vein of this. And the events that are going to happen in Jerusalem, he's talking about, will feel almost cosmic in their scope when Jerusalem falls and the temple is destroyed. The whole world will feel like it's ending. Then Jesus hyperlinks to Daniel 7, where the prophet saw Messiah, called the Son of Man, ascending on a cloud to his place at the Father's right hand. And from there, he sets the world right. And so this, I believe, is speaking of both the church age, which leads to Jesus' promised return uh, to to gather all that belong to him. But what I want to focus on in this, and there's a lot in this. This is a Sunday morning, so we're not going to be able to just dig into every little aspect. I'm sure there's little spots in there you're thinking well what about that section there uh you know we've actually gone over this at different times uh, in the past you could maybe look at our website but i really don't have time to go into all of that right now uh, you know hopefully this overview gives enough of a a sense of it 
What I want to focus on is the last line of that section. When we see all this stuff happening, Jesus says, stand up and and look up, stand and look up for your salvation is near. It's such an important reminder in this. Far from trying to get us agitated or afraid about world events, Jesus is reminding us of something very important. That when we live with the finish line in view, we have to remember that God's end game is redemption. This is all leading towards redemption. That's what this is all about. As terrible as the destruction of the temple was, it was signaling the end of one world and the ushering in of a new one. A world where all people of all nations and all backgrounds can now get in on God's redemption of this world. That's the very idea behind what we were celebrating this morning in communion. We've been purchased and redeemed by God through Christ's death and resurrection. That's for all people. God's intending to set this world right again. And that's what this whole thing is headed for. It's a good ending that's out there in front of us. That's why we're representatives of the good news. That's what it is. The good news is that God has broken into this world to bring salvation to all who receive it and to make all things right again. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And it's so easy to get caught up in this in the terrible state of things in this world. It could easily become a, a source of fear and, and dread. And Jesus knows this. He knew it for his first followers. He knows it for us as well. And that's why he's describing the, the terrible fate uh, of the of the temple and its in its city and that whole system and as he's describing it he brings it back into proper focus it's sort of like he he knew we were going to get mesmerized by by the roaring seas and the falling stars and it's like he's snapping his fingers saying not there not there look here it's salvation that's what this is about don't fixate on these other things keep your eyes on the prize of salvation it's all headed towards god God's good intent for us and for this world. And that's a source of comfort no matter what is happening in this world. No matter how dark and how terrible this world can seem, we are people who remember the whole story. We know the ending. We know where this is going. That's why we can be a people who have hope, right? Okay, so, and I'm not asking for amens. I just wanted to make sure that I'm not way out in left field. A little bit, you know, a toe or two. Uh, Okay, let's uh, try to finish this up quickly. Uh, Verse 29, he says, Then he gave him this illustration. Notice the fig tree, or, or any other tree. When the leaves come out, you know without being told that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. I'll tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene till all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. For the day will come upon everyone living on earth. Keep alert at all times. Pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. So heavy, heavy stuff that he's, he's saying in this. Um, but the imagery that he begins it with, you know, I love springtime. I don't know if you're like that, but I love it. I, to me, you know, Robbie and I've got lots of trees that we planted and flowering plants, and there's nothing that I enjoy more than, you know, those once dead branches starting to sprout leaves again and seeing that 
come back into bloom. Spring arrives and then summer and then into fall into winter and it all begins again. And we go through this again. And Jesus uses that as an illustration. He tells that when you see the trees bloom, you know that spring is coming. Summer's just around the corner. And in the same way, when we observe how the world keeps cycling with each generation through these troubles, we can know that this is headed towards God's good ending that he has in mind. Now, when Jesus says that this generation isn't going to pass away until this happened, that's a pretty solid case in my thinking that the focus of this prediction is on the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the temple dispensation in 70 AD. But it could also be revealing the cyclical nature of this, that, that cycling towards this, that will come to a head one day where these events are repeated on some global um, cataclysmic scale. I don't know for sure. I'm just saying that that's clearly there in the text and could be read that way, that there is this cycling towards something cataclysmic. What captures my attention and what I pin my hope on is verse 33. Heaven and earth can pass away. All that we know in this created life is transient, but his words, this promise that he will return and set things right will not fade away. It is certain. This will come to pass is what he's saying. And that's what I choose to focus on. When the finish line is ahead, let's live out our anticipation of redemption in the here and now. What it is we believe this is headed towards, this certainty of Jesus's words. Let's allow that to affect how we live in this present life. As we stated before, be alert, but not alarmed. Don't We don't need to be speculating on every world event that takes place. There's a huge difference between speculation and anticipation. And I think sometimes we conflate the two and we get excited about speculating about what this or that event could mean instead of just anticipating that no matter what's happening here, we are moving towards something good. We are moving towards God's redemption of all things. Be conscious of what you hear and see, but not cowering in a bunker somewhere or self-medicating, tuning it all out going and you know, just getting drunk all the time or going to parties all the time just to try to forget about this. I got to try to medicate myself to keep from facing the reality of it. And this is the challenge of being good news people, that we're not called to live in some insulated bubble of faith where we're unaffected by the world's troubles around us, nor are we called to address the world's troubles using the world's methodology. No, we live right in the midst of this mess, but secure in the promise of God and the salvation that he proclaims, the salvation that we anticipate. Living right now as though the world's already a better place. Living in anticipation of what we believe to be true, that God is going to make all things right again. God calls us, and we think about this is our mission as the church. God calls us to the place where the purposes of God and the pain of this world meet. And he calls us to bear the troubles of this broken world with the radical self-sacrificial love of Christ, to be revelations of that in this troubled world. With all the pain in the world, it's easy to, to, to despair or to grow numb to it. Certainly we know that with the news cycles that continue to come through. It's, it would be easy just to throw our hands up and say it's hopeless, it's awful. Or to just start saying, you know, I can't even think about it anymore. I don't want to hear it one more time. I can't deal with it. Or, you know, to just give up altogether. But it's precisely now when the world around us 
feels the most unstable, that we're called to be resilient in our determination to show that love of God to worlds so desperately in need of it. What Jesus is describing here, something that we really need to pay attention to, were not signs of death, but signs of life that was ready to come. These troubles are an indicator of a new life that's coming, one way or the other, the end of the age and the beginning of something new. We're called to bear witness to God's goodness in the midst of these ruins that we stand in. And we can rest assured that these upheavals will end in joy. And that joy will never end. That's the promise. The big takeaway is, in light of the finish line that we're all headed for, our job description never changes. It is consistent all the way through. We are called to stay the course of loving God and loving others and to share the good news of God's love to the world around us, to to show off the, the love of God on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus commissioned us to do. Our purpose remains steady. Whatever happens, we can still say, I'm on a mission from God. I'm here to love God and love people and share the good news of God's grace. So we all live with a finish line somewhere, whether it's this whole broken world, whether it's just in our lives. Let's not get caught up in sensational hype. It's easy to. It's easy to get caught up in that. It's easy to to want to fixate on those things. It's easy to get caught up in the outrage of this world. Let's be aware, but not alarmed. Let's not live in fear, but let's live out of our love for God and let his love for humanity flow through us. The best preparation for the night is to work diligently while the day lasts. Right on? All right. Before we Before we close, you guys can come on up if you need to get up here. I mean, in light of all that we've been talking about here, it's still right and proper for us to be praying for people who are suffering. And I think it would be important for us this morning to pray for the people of Uvalde, Texas, uh, given the, the horrors of what has been visited upon their little town. And so, Father, we pray for them right now. We join our hearts together with believers all over the world who I know are praying for this community and what they've faced and what they're going through and the people who are having to try to put the pieces back together or find some way to cope with the events that have taken place. And Lord, as is our practice, we fall into camps and begin lobbing grenades of accusations back and forth at one another, all while we stand in a pool of blood. It's horrifying, Lord. Help us as your people be real agents of hope that could possibly lead to change. Help us as your people to speak words, not that add to the chaos, but to that, that bring light and life and hope to those who need it. We pray for all of the parents and all of those who've lost loved ones in this massacre We pray, Father, that you comfort and help and heal. Lord, we do as you called us to do. We pray for the family of the gunman. And we pray that you surround them with your grace and your help and your healing. This world is so broken, Lord God. And events like this just bring it into clearer focus for us. 
This world is so broken. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and turn this around. We long for the day where we live in the light of the Prince of Peace, where our children are safe no matter where they are, where all people dwell together in love and in unity and rightly represent your loving rule to creation around us. That's the original vocation we had that Adam and Eve fell from. Father, that's what we aspire to be. So help us, Lord, to be influences of your goodness in this world. Help us to speak goodness and grace and hope into into the horrors that we face in this world. Let the gospel meet the pain of this world and bring about change. That's what we ask for, Father. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'll stand with us, please. So we're going to end on a new song. We rarely do that, but I I found this song and the words are really powerful. So uh, just uh, as we sing it, meditate on it. And uh, I hope they're as impactful for you all as they were to me. So. Your blood for me, my Jesus set me free. Look at the wounds that give me life, grace flowing from his side. No greater sacrifice, what he's done, what he's done, all the glory. Sins are forgiven. My future is heaven. I praise God for what He's done. Sing for the freedom we have won. Even death is dead and done. His life is Sing hallelujah to the 
Father, we do thank you that that's the hope that we have for what it is that you've accomplished on the cross of Calvary gives us hope, gives us security, and makes us beacons of hope for this world. Help us to live out what it is that you've called us to be. Help us to be your people, Lord. We confess and know we don't do it well, but you by your spirit enable us and can lead us into different ways in which we carry ourselves and live in this world. So help us to do it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, pray this prayer before we bail out of here today. Uh, If you have any uh, needs that you want to be prayed for, please come on up. There will be people to pray with you here. We'll just see what God will do. Uh, 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 Enjoy your day tomorrow. Take time to remember those who uh, made that ultimate sacrifice to be able to enjoy a day like we have tomorrow. But let's pray this prayer together. Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do your will here like it's done in heaven. Provide for our daily needs. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. We confess you're in charge. You're our provider. Our lives are in your hands. Yes and amen. Go in peace, you children of God.